Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. When God's house on earth is a house of prayer, then God's house in heaven is busy. The condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. If God be near a church, it must pray. When a church realizes it all depends on God, not them, and will yield together their lives fully to Him, God begins to work. A revival is a work of God's Spirit among Christians, whereby they get right with God, with themselves, and with others. It means conviction of sin on the part of Christians, repentance, and confession of sin. Reconciliation and restitution, getting right with others, separation from the world, submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and being filled with the Spirit. God cannot pour out His Spirit on the church unless He first pours it out on the individuals within the church. As a family of faith, We are right in the middle of exploring the subject, When God Moves. We're kind of using the early chapters of the book of Acts as a subject matter for us as we unpack this great movement of God that began there in the city of Jerusalem. And let me just say again as we begin this journey together today, that we cannot create a movement of God. I want you to hear that very clearly. There's nothing that we can do to create a movement of God. It is not our desire with this series to look into the pages of Scripture and discover some sort of formula And if we will just simply follow the formula, then we can manipulate God into moving the way that we want Him to move. We cannot create a movement of God. What we can do is learn from the pages of Scripture how to be ready should God choose to move. We want God to move. We're desiring to see God move. And what we want to learn from these weeks weeks together as we unpack some of these verses in the book of Acts, and, and we've said again that there's no way that we can exhaustively study this in the book of Acts. We're kind of taking a 30 or maybe even a 50,000 foot view of some of these passages of Scripture, you'll notice in just a few moments when we dig into the passage for today, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks unpacking the the verses that we want to look at this morning. But as we go through these verses and as we go through these, these topics over these weeks, what we're trying to do is determine how you and I can be ready. If God should, in His infinite grace and divine wisdom choose to move in our city, choose to begin something in our fellowship, 
How is it that we are ready for God to move? And we're, we're trying to unpack some principles about what it looks like when God moves. And we began last weekend in the first chapter of the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it back to the opening pages of the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. We unpacked chapter 1 last weekend, and here was the principle that we laid down. When God moves, His people get desperate. And here's basically what we said last weekend. If you anywhere in history find a move of God, you dig deep enough in that movement, and you will find God's people desperately seeking Him. You you look for it anywhere in the world. Anywhere in history, you see God moving in a mighty and powerful way. We read about one in the book of Acts. We looked at one last weekend from history that happened and started in New York City. There are others that happen in in Wales and in Ireland. There are those that happen in England. There are some that have happened in Africa. There's a move of God happening right now in Asia. When you read and you study and you examine great movements of God, You dig deep enough, you will always find God's people seeking Him desperately. Last weekend, we talked about that in light of having, first of all, an attitude of desperation, which meant that we had a passion for God to move. Then we also began to talk about the act of desperation, praying for God to move. I hope that's where you find yourself today. I hope that there is a growing sense of passion for God to move that is producing in you and I a desperate prayer for God to move. I don't want you to raise your hand. I don't want you to answer out loud. I'm asking the question for you to have a moment with the Holy Spirit of God in your own heart. Have you this week, in desperation, cried out for God to move? Are we desperate? What we're learning from the scripture is that when God moves, and I I think most of us would say we want to see that, we want to be a part of that. When He does, His people are desperate. We're going to continue this weekend by jumping into Acts chapter 2 and we're going to discover the next characteristic. And here it is. I'll put it up on the screen for you. When God moves, His Spirit through His Word changes lives. Read that out loud with me. When God moves, His Spirit through His Word changes lives. If you were going to put a heading on the second chapter of the book of Acts, to me, that's it. God's Spirit, through God's Word, changed lives. Lives are being changed in a radical way. As a matter of fact, what what began here in Acts chapter 2, this movement of God, is what you and I now know as the church. In Acts chapter 2, God moved in a supernatural way and the church was born. What you and I are a part of this morning, the local gathering and expression of the body of Christ called the church began right here in Acts chapter 2. On their first Sunday, you want to talk about a move of God. On their first Sunday... In our vernacular today in the church in America, we would call it Launch Sunday. They're planting a new church. This is grand opening. On their grand opening Sunday, they preach the gospel. And the Bible tells us, we're going to read it in just a moment, 3,000 people were born again into a relationship with God on Sunday number one. I'd say that's a pretty good grand opening Sunday. Amen? Can you imagine? How do you explain that? Let me tell you explain that. Move of God. 
If you try to package it in any other way, you're going to short sell what really happened there. Move of God. God moved. And it wasn't just a moment. It was a movement. Because the next Sunday they came back together again. And they preached the gospel again. And on the next Sunday, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 4 and verse 4 that that, that so many people came to Christ. They, They didn't even count everybody. They only counted the men. And on the second Sunday, the Bible tells us that 5,000 men came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I'm not talking about they raised their hand and filled out a card. I'm talking about people who radically experienced a life-changing relationship with the God of heaven, and God changed them. Now, we're two Sundays in. And now we're talking... 10, 15,000 brand new Christians. Historians and scholars that have studied what happened in Jerusalem say that within six months, 100,000 people in Jerusalem had been born again into relationship with God and began radically following Jesus. I want you to think about that for a minute. What if that happened in Las Vegas? What if by July of this year, they were writing articles in the Las Vegas Review Journal about this movement of 100,000 people that have now become radical followers of Jesus Christ, devoted their lives to Him, and they're sharing their faith everywhere. You say, well, that's stuff that happens in the Bible. You do know that the same God, there hasn't been a change in office. The same God that was sitting on the throne in Acts chapter 1 when his people got desperate and cried out for God to move that in six months changed the city with 100,000 people coming into That same God is sitting on the throne today and he's waiting on his people to get desperate. Now, now don't mishear what I'm saying. We cannot duplicate or manufacture what happened in the book of Acts. It was a radical expression of the Holy Spirit moving in a way that established the New Testament church. But I'm telling you, there have been movements of God like this all over the world in the history of Christianity. And that same God can do that again today. One of the great obstacles is you and I don't even expect it to happen. How many of you came today thinking, you know what, today may be the day. It may just break out. What you got cooking in the oven just going to burn. God just starts moving. We just maybe not get it even to leave. Historians and scholars go on to tell us that Within 40 years, the gospel had reached every corner of the known world. In one generation, the gospel, without Instagram and Google and Twitter and airplanes and email, in one generation, the gospel reached every corner of the known world. You want to talk about move of God? Today there are in the world 2 billion professing Christians. Out of over 7 billion people on planet Earth, 2 billion professing Christians. Now we won't even dig into who really is and who really isn't. Let's just, let's just take them at face value right now. 2 billion professing believers on planet Earth. Every one of them, you and I included trace our faith back 
to this movement of God that began in the city of Jerusalem. With 120 people in an upper room begging God to move. I don't know about you. I want to be a part of something like that. How did it happen? What, what, what was it about this group? Because when you look at the group that it started with, you wouldn't have picked them to be on your team. Let me just say it that way. My friend J.D. Greer said it this way, Never has a larger assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. These people didn't have money. They didn't have education. They didn't have influence. They weren't great speakers. They weren't bold and courageous. As a matter of fact, 40 days earlier, when Jesus was crucified, you couldn't find them. They were hiding, terrified. But they had a passion for God to move, and they prayed. And this morning as we sit here, look around you. We are a living testimony that God moved. You and I are sitting here as a part of the movement that began right then, right there. Now I want to pick it up in Acts chapter 2 and you're going to have to listen fast. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Y'all are listening too slow. <laughs> Acts chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, I want to read sections of this chapter. We're not going to read it all. We don't have time to read it all. I'll tell you the story of what happens in some of the gaps we skip over. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. You know, sometimes I read stuff in the Bible and think, man, I'd just love to see some of your faces if something like that happened, you know? I'd like to just been in the room because I watch some of you while we're just singing. And while we're just singing, some of you freak out. And man, I can't imagine if we're sitting here and it's like a freight train, the Holy Spirit of God just moves. I'd love to see the faces. Let us read on. Verse 3. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. What's going on here? Well, there's a lot we don't know. What we do know is that for the first time, the Holy Spirit of God empowered His people, the church, to accomplish the mission that He'd just given them that we know is the Great Commission. And as a supernatural sign and a miracle that God had done that, He gave them here what the Bible calls this gift of tongues. And here it's literally a gift of languages. If We don't have time to read it, but if you'll this afternoon go on and read verses 5 and following through verse 37, the Bible says that they began to speak in languages that they didn't know. It'd be like me standing here and all of a sudden there's a pocket of Chinese people here and, and I'm speaking, but they're hearing me speak in Chinese perfectly in their own language. That's what's going on here. There's this gathering in Jerusalem of all of these people from different cultures because of the holiday. There's all these, as you read on down in verse 9, 10, and 11, all these different people with different dialects, different cultures, different languages have all gathered here in Jerusalem. And now these people begin to be filled with the Spirit of God. They begin to speak the Word of God. They begin to speak the Gospel. And Peter is kind of pushed to the forefront of that conversation. And Peter, in verses uh, 14 down through verse 36, Peter unpacks the Gospel of Jesus Christ and supernaturally all of these cultures, all of these languages, all of these dialects are all crystally clear hearing the word of God and the gospel in their own language by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. 
Wow! It's exactly what Jesus had told them was going to happen. The Spirit of God's going to come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the end of the earth. How in the world are we going to do that? We don't know all those languages. Well, he answered question one right here. I'm just going to give it to you. Let's pick up in verse 37. Verse 37, after they've spoken the word, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. And each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. In response to the desperation of His people, God moved by His Spirit through His Word to change lives. Now, when you begin to talk about a movement of God, there seem to be two extremes in Christianity. One extreme is what I will call the all about the Spirit crowd. And when they begin to talk about a movement of God, it's a movement that is all about the Spirit. And by that, I mean it is a movement that is defined by experience. And when we think about a movement of God, if we're in this camp, we're looking for all the right experiences and all the right expressions. And if we see and feel all the right experiences, we say, man, wasn't that a good move of God? The other extreme is what I call all about the Word. It's a movement defined by right theology. And they think that the only time God can move is when everybody agrees and always believes exactly the same thing about exactly the same issues, about exactly the same points in Scripture. And so they define a move of God by right theology. And I love what Jim Cimbala said. If you're reading his book along with us, Spirit Rising, I love this quote. Look at it on the screen. Somewhere in the middle is the kind of Christianity we see in the Scripture where the Word of God is honored along with a childlike dependence and openness to the Holy Spirit. That's what I think a move of God looks like. It's not not all about experience. It's not all about theology. It is a, 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 a... a balanced, somewhere in the middle, honoring of the Word of God with the empowerment and movement of the Spirit of God, that's what movement looks like. Listen, there will be no move of God without the Holy Spirit working in and through us supernaturally. Let me say it again. There will be no move of God without the Holy Spirit moving and working in and through us supernaturally. But listen to this. 
When the Holy Spirit is working in and through us supernaturally, it is always consistent with what is revealed in the Word of God. Those two balancing tensions are what, in many ways, are the guardrails for the move of God among us. There are many questions in Acts chapter 2. We just read it. There are a lot of questions. But what we know for sure is that in response to the desperation of His people, God moved mightily by His Spirit through His Word. And the result was that lives were changed. So I want to focus on that with the time that we have left and talk about what this life change looked like when God moved. And I want to give it to you in two statements. Here's the first one. When God moves through His Word, people begin to get right with God. And the defining mark of that is this little two-word expression, genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. A defining mark of the move of God in Acts chapter 2 is repentance. The Bible says in verse 37, when they heard this. The word heard there is an important word. It means to understand, to comprehend, to hear with attention. For the first time, this large congregation of people heard the gospel. They heard the word of God, the spirit of God, through the word of God. They heard it. What is the gospel? The gospel is that great redemptive message of God that you and I, have sinned against a holy God. God created us for fellowship and relationship with Himself. But you and I sinned against God. And because of our sin against God, we lost the ability to have a relationship with God. But God loved us so much that God didn't leave us separate from Him. But God sent His Son Jesus into this world to die on a cross and rise again from the dead so that you and I could be forgiven of our sin and have a relationship with God that we lost because of sin. That's the message of the gospel that we sinned against a holy God but that God loved us and made a way for us to be forgiven of our sin. And the Bible says when they heard that, They were pierced to the heart. The word pierced is in the passive voice. It means they didn't pierce their own heart. The Holy Spirit of God took the Word of God and He pierced their heart. It's a word that means to be stabbed. It's sudden. It's unexpected. They didn't go expecting it to happen. They weren't looking for anything. But they heard the gospel and all at once the Spirit of God pierced their heart and they knew that they were guilty before God and needed to be forgiven And they looked at the apostles and said, what do we do? And the response was one word, repent. I don't know about you, but I remember the first time I heard the gospel like that. I don't misunderstand. I'd heard the gospel many, many, many times growing up. Been to a lot of church services, but as an older teenager... I remember hearing a man by the name of Bill Stafford. My my dad knew him well, and Bill was a traveling preacher, and Bill had come into our church and was preaching the gospel. He was talking about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and I'm going to tell you stuff I'd heard my whole life all at once. I was pierced to the heart. It was some time later that I surrendered the control of my life to Jesus Christ. God and His grace continued to deal with me. But I remember hearing and the gospel, just what I'd heard, what I'd seen on paper, all of a sudden it came alive. And so that's what happened here. And they said, what do we do? They said, you got to repent. The word repent's an interesting word. It's a word that literally, if you just take it literally, it means to change the mind. It's a compound word that comes from the root word of the mind. It means to change the mind. It's regret and sorrow accompanied by a true change of heart towards God. Repentance 
is our response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and convicts our heart, our response is repentance. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what once he hated and hate what once he loved. Repentance. It's not a word we hear very often in the contemporary church in America. And maybe that's why... We see so little of the movement of God in the contemporary church in America. Because here's what we understand from Acts chapter 2. When God moves, there is genuine repentance. There is a change that takes place on the inside in response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. In response to hearing the word, I am convicted and my response is to repent. Repentance has two identifying marks. I want to share them with you. First is confession. Where there is genuine repentance, there is first confession. To confess means to agree with God about my sin. When under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God... I repent, the first step is to say, God, you are right, I am wrong. It's not to try to justify it, it's not to try to explain it, it's not to try to cover it up. Step one in repentance is to just get honest and say, yep, you're right. And God, I am wrong. Lord, you've shown me in your word. God, I've seen it very clearly. It happens at the moment of salvation. It happens many times in our lives. God, you are right and I am wrong. My mentor, Clyde Cranford, said it this way. Confession is simply coming clean with God and ourselves about sin. It is dragging that sin out into the light and getting real. Not only about the sin, but also about ourselves. The word confess in the Bible is a Greek word that's a compound word. It's made up of two words that mean this. One of them means the same. It's the Greek word homo legeo. That's the Greek word homo legeo, confess. Homo is the same. Logeo means to say or speak. You put it together, the word confess means to say the same thing. It means to say the same thing about my sin that God says. It means to agree with God. God, you're right, I'm wrong. Lord, I've sinned against you. When they heard the gospel, they understood they'd sinned against God. They said, what do we do to be forgiven? Peter says, repent, which begins with confession. God, you are right. Lord, I am wrong. God, I confess it. But listen, a lot of people think that's all that repentance is, is confession. There's whole denominations built around the idea of just confessing things. There's a second aspect of repentance. There is confession, but then there is turning. Confession by itself is not repentance. Confession and turning. Turning is a surrendering to a new way of living in Christ. You see, confession without turning is not repentance. It's simply regret. Confession. God, you're right. I'm wrong. Turning, a yielding of the control of my life to the Holy Spirit. I'm now turning from my sin to a new way of living in Christ. Understanding, I can't do that on my own, but I'm turning from my sin and I'm yielding to a new way of living in Christ. My my mentor Clyde said it this way, real repentance is a permanent turning with ongoing results. 
And real repentance is a turning not only from what we have done, but from who we are. Siding with God not only against our sin, but against ourselves. God, I agree. You're right. I'm wrong. I'm leaving my side. I'm getting on your side. I'm not only turning against my sin, I'm turning against myself, the things that I desire. Lord, I'm yielding myself. Now, in this text, we see two ways that repentance is required. I'll give them to you. Number one, repentance is required to be saved. Read that out loud with me. Repentance is required to be saved. What must we do? Peter says, repent for the forgiveness of sins. To confess. The way that we put our faith in Jesus is through repentance. We we confess our sins. We embrace who He is and we turn from our sin to Jesus. And don't be surprised that Peter said this. This is exactly what Jesus told the disciples. Look at Luke chapter 24. Look what Jesus said. He said to them, Verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that, say it out loud, repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Beginning in Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. You see, you cannot, don't miss this. This is where a lot of people get mixed up when they talk about stuff. You cannot turn to Jesus without turning from sin. Salvation is not just some fire insurance. I don't have to go to hell when I die. Salvation is Jesus becoming the Lord and the Savior of my life. I'm turning from my sin to Jesus and by faith embracing Him. I'm agreeing with God in confession and I'm turning to Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that I'm perfect? No, that's not what it means. Does that mean that I never deal with sin again? No, that's not what it means. But at the moment of salvation, I understand, yes, God, you're right, I'm wrong. In order to be saved, I agree with God, I confess my sin, and in faith, I embrace who Jesus is, I turn from my sin and receive the forgiveness of God. That's what happens when you get saved. If you've experienced that, say amen. Listen, repentance is real. And if we are preaching a gospel that does not demand repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we are not preaching the gospel of the Bible. We turn from our sin and we embrace Jesus. So, I want to ask you a question in the, this moment before we, we move on. Have you ever repented of your sins and received God's forgiveness? Under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, you agree with God about your sin. You confess it and you turn from it and you embrace Jesus. That's salvation. Has that ever happened in your life? I believe there are a lot of people in the church in America who think because they're going to church, doing some good things, reading their Bible a little bit, praying some, that they've covered their bases. Listen, the Word of God says we repent from our sin, we embrace the gospel. That's how we're saved. Repentance is required to be saved. Let me give you a second statement. Repentance is required because I'm saved. You say, what do you mean by that? Repentance is not just a one-time experience. If the last time you repented was when you got saved, you're missing it. Repentance is not a one-time experience. It is a way of life. Look at this quote by J.I. Packer. I love this. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as your knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. You see, when I got saved, I gave, 
I, I turned from and, and confessed as much as I knew about my sin and myself to as much as I knew about God, and I was born again. But let me tell you something. That's been over 20 years ago now, 25 years ago now. Listen, I look back now. I know a whole lot more about me, a whole lot more about sin, a whole lot more about God. And every day of my life, God is showing me some areas that reveal more of who He is, more of who I am. And let me tell you what my response has to be in those moments. Repentance. Every day of my life, the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, shows me areas where I need to say, yep, God, you're right, I'm wrong. And I need to turn from that and embrace God's forgiveness. Am I being saved all over again? No, that is settled, that is secure, but it's keeping my fellowship with God right and intimate. Listen, sometimes it's an attitude. Where God has to show me in my heart, Vance, you had a wrong eye. I'll be reading the scripture and the Holy Spirit of God will just stab me. He'll pierce my heart and show me an attitude that's been wrong. And right in that moment, I have to say, God, you are right. God, I am wrong. Lord, I lay that before you. I agree with you. And God, right now, by your grace and the power of your spirit, I want to turn away from that. Now, Lord, I know that in my own strength, I'm going to run right back to this attitude. But God, I know that you've given me your spirit. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't have to live with that attitude anymore. God, I can be changed in you. So, Lord, I agree with you. I confess it. I get honest. And by the power of your spirit, God, I turn from it. If that's not happening for you daily... And let me say this about it. The time to repent is always now. What do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. As soon as the Spirit pierces the heart. You see, there's some of you right now as I'm speaking. It has nothing to do with what I'm saying. It has everything to do with the Holy Spirit of God using the Word of God to pierce the hearts of human beings. I'll have people walk out and say, oh, pastor, thank you for saying this. And I'm thinking, I didn't say that at all. <laughs> Let me tell you who did. The Holy Spirit of God. You see, the Holy Spirit takes the word. There's no way to prepare a sermon to speak to over 2,000 people in a way that's going to meet every one of them right where they are. But listen, if you'll just be faithful to the book and expound the book, what the book says, the Spirit of God promises to use the word of God and speak right to the hearts of the people of God and bring change and transformation. Some of you are sitting here this morning, and as I'm talking, the Holy Spirit of God is putting His finger right on an attitude, or right on an action, or right on a desire, or right on a relationship, or something that you're holding on to. And the Holy Spirit of God is pressing your heart. And let me tell you when the time to repent of that is. Right now. Right now, in your soul and in your heart, just drag it out in front of God and say, God, you're right. I'm wrong. God, I agree with you. And by the power of your spirit, I'm going to turn from that. Listen, if we don't do that, we can grieve and quench the Holy Spirit of God and develop a hard heart as a Christian. You become insensitive. To the Holy Spirit of God. If you don't live repenting now. The Holy Spirit of God. Is not a water faucet. That you turn on and off. To deal with on your time. Listen. He's God. When he wants to speak to you. You stop and listen. And you respond to what he's saying. It's required for salvation, but it's also required because we are saved. It's an ongoing attitude. So, so there's a question I want you to wrestle with. Is, is there anything right now in your life that God is speaking about that you need to repent of? Some of you are already in your mind doing the normal gymnastics of explaining it away why God isn't talking about this and why this is different. They're extenuating circumstances. You, you're going to lose that argument. The question is, how do you want to lose it? If you belong to Him, listen to me. You're going to lose that argument. How you want to get there. 
Read Jonah. You're going to get there. Oh, yeah, God got Jonah. No, 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 don't, don't miss the story. God didn't get Jonah. God loved Jonah so much, he wouldn't let him go where he didn't need to be. He was going to bring whatever necessary into his life. When God moves, people get right with God, and it looks like repentance. Lost people, repent. And are saved. Save people. Repent over things in their lives to bring themselves into conformity with God's holy, righteous standard. If you just want God to move so that you can have a big pick-me-up and leave here on a spiritual high, listen, you miss what happens when God, when God moves. There's genuine repentance. If you got that, say amen. amen. All right, that was about half. We only got about five minutes left, all right? So, so let me give you the second half real quick, all right? Y'all laughing like you think I'm kidding. Here, here's the second one. People begin to get right with one another. And, and the expression I'm using for this is authentic community. You see, when God moves, people get right with God. There's genuine repentance. But when God moves, it doesn't just affect this relationship. Listen to me. It affects this relationship. Like maybe no other verses in all the Bible, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, describes some radical expression of people living in relationship with each other. And before I read them again, you just have to know this. Acts 2, 42 to 47, is about to describe some radical, authentic community that's happening among some people that just a few hours and days earlier hated each other's guts. When you read verse 42 to 47, don't miss that earlier in the chapter, all these people have been mocking them. When they started speaking in other languages, they said, these people must be drunk. They're making fun of them. Just a few days earlier, they'd line the streets and scream, Crucify Him! They were doing everything they could to stamp out the name of Jesus. They hated Christians, they hated Christianity, and they hated the Christ of Christianity. Not only that, as you read in the early part of chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, these were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt. These are people in this street. They're from all over the world. They've gathered in the city of Jerusalem for this holiday, speaking different languages, coming from different cultures. Some of them were warring with each other. Some of them been fighting. Some of them had had hatred of the others for generations. It was deep rooted, deep-seated hatred, persecution, and violence. Then look at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. They kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. All who believed had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anybody had a need. Day by day, they were continuing in the temple, and they're breaking bread from house to house, and they're taking their meals together with gladness. And since These people who hated each other, these people who were persecuting each other, these people who wanted to kill each other, now they're picking up Kentucky Fried Chicken and hanging out every day. They can't get them out of the church. When God moves, you see that. You see people that are not right with each other begin to get right with each other and Again, we could take 42 to 47. We could unpack that text of Scripture for about four weeks. Let me give you some big principles that are characteristics of rightly relating with each other. They had a devotion that is unified. Verse 42 says they were devoted to apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. Bottom line is there was a unity about what God was saying and what God was doing. They united around what God was saying and what God was doing. And don't miss this. Because they wrapped their hearts around it, they didn't make room for division. 
They were united about what God was saying. They were united about what God was doing. And that was bigger than any of the differences in their culture or opinion. Hey, look around you. I wish... I wish I could pick you up and just take you with me when I travel across the country. I tell the story of you everywhere I go. I tell the story of the diversity. I mean, how in the world could God bring three guys from Alabama and Tennessee, plant us in Las Vegas, and produce this? Look around you. We have over 43 languages spoken in our fellowship alone. That's just the ones we know about. 43 languages. There's diversity of culture. There's diversity of race. There's diversity of socioeconomic and educational background. All in here. And yet, we we agree about what God's saying. We agree about what God's doing. And when you do that, there's not room for that other stuff to bring division. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's what they experienced. Our society could use a good dose of that. Here's the second one. They had a generosity that was selfless. Look what it says. They were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. The word share, there's an interesting word. It's not the same word for share that I've pointed out to you at other points in the Scripture. This is a unique word, share, here. It means to divide. Here's what that means. They were taking what they had and taking portions of it and giving it to people who had need. Which meant this, the person who was doing the giving now had less. Well, that doesn't sound like fun. That's what's going on. These people that they had had this generational hatred for, now the gospel so changed them. They're looking at what they got. They're seeing their need and going, you know what? I'll take some of what I got and give it to you to meet that need. When's the last time you did that in this fellowship? You took what you had, you gave some of it so that somebody else could have a need met, left you with less, but you're all right with it because you've been so changed by the power of the gospel that you just want to love your brother and sister in Christ and you know what God's given you. He's given you to be a blessing to them anyway. Here's the third one. It produced a community that was contagious. I love how it ends. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's the principle. Other people were seeing this unity and this generosity and this expression of love and going, I'd like to be in on that. And the lives that they were living was becoming a platform for them to share the gospel with the people around them. And day by day, others were coming. What if it just got out in Las Vegas that there's a group of people that they were so united They were so devoted to some things that were so much bigger than them. And they were selflessly serving. Everybody's needs were getting met. Everybody's just giving and sharing. And other people start saying, hey, I'd like to be a part of that. And then we get to tell them the gospel. And the Spirit of God gets to speak to their heart. And it leads to repentance. And they're born again in their relationship with God. And then they start living the same life we're living. Not because of anything we've done. Everything He's done in and through us. When God moves, His Spirit through His Word, changes lives. Let's, let's pray together.